Welcome to Psyched, a podcast about psychiatry that covers everything from the foundational to the cutting edge, from the popular to the weird. Thanks for tuning in. So, so yeah, let's let's also talk about um, nutrition and uh, diet and and microbiology of psychiatric conditions. So um, I know there's been some discussion uh, and some some work that you've been involved with around uh, depression and the uh, and probiotics or depression in, in the microbiome. Could you say is is this something that is is uh, how good is this evidence or what is the relationship between something that we would consider a psychiatric illness and the gut? Um, so, as you know, some 100, 150 years ago, there the, 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 the were psychiatrists who were actually obsessed with the role of the colon and the fermentation. Um, and it, it led to this um, unfortunate um, situation that many psychiatric patients and um, psychiatric inpatient um, in, in, in hospitals had to forcefully undergo colectomy, and many died because. Um, um, so there was a phase where psychiatry was actually very much interested in, 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 in the gut playing a ma- in, in, in the microbes playing a major role in, in psychiatric disease. That, that obviously has completely disappeared. Um, today, there's something new that's sort of come up, and that's the, the role of diet in influencing the nervous system. Um, there's a person, uh, Felice Chaka in Australia, who's sort of recently published a, a study, the SMILE, the results of the SMILE study, um, where they found that um, if in, a, in a randomized study, if they compared the outcomes of um, patients, I think it was with major depressive disorder, that um, they underwent conventional therapy as compared to conventional therapy with, conventional therapy and, and their regular diet with conventional therapy with um, a Mediterranean-type diet, that there was a significant difference. With an imp- um, and, and she has written about this topic. Um, one explanation for that is sort of this, um, it's related to this concept of an inflammatory diet. Um, we, we know that high-fat, high-sugar diets um, change the microbiota in a way that there's a whole series of events. Um, Increased permeability of the gut is the result of that. Um, increased access of lipopolysaccharides um, or other pro-inflammatory molecules, the gut-associated immune system, which then creates a, it's not full-blown inflammation like in inflammatory bowel disease, but a low-grade inflammatory state, which then often becomes systemic. So you have circulating LPS levels. and. Um, so in my opinion, that's sort of the most plausible explanation. If you have this, and as you know, I mean, like neuroinflammation has been so implicated for depression and other psychiatric diseases as well. So it could well be that diet plays a role in, um, in exacerbating. Certainly not diet as the cause of, of psychiatric disease, but as a significant modifier. I've heard people say that when they went on sugar-free diets or they went on gluten-free diets that their mood improved. Do you think that's true with what you're seeing in research? Does it, is it totally subjective and they just believe in the diet? There's certainly, with anything diet, a huge um, 
psychological dimension. So I mean, I, I think there's few things that have such a placebo effect as as diet has, um, and so the high sugar um, um, phenomenon. I I do believe because we know a lot about this high sugar, high fat makes you. It's it's sort of like opiates. It makes you feel better right away. That's why people almost like self-medicate when they're stressed out. You know, you, you crave for something like that. Uh, <clears throat> but in the long term, it has these detrimental effects and leads to this low-grade inflammatory state. Um, so I, I, I think when people say that when they switch their diet to a healthy diet that they feel better, I certainly believe that. Um, in terms of the gluten, that's of another, a whole other story. So as a gastroenterologist, you know, I'm obviously fully aware of the seriousness of uh, celiac disease. Then it does appear now probably also related to the microbes and the early interaction with the immune system that we develop, that people develop more and more um, hypersensitivities and even allergies to food items that, you know, 20 years ago nobody, like, the peanuts and wheat and if you have that condition if you eliminate the offending agent most likely you will feel better as well but then you have like 40 percent of the u.s population now who who thinks you know gluten is is toxic for them and that's really unsubstantiated so there's nothing that's been found and so like ibs you can take biopsies you don't don't find any um, possible pathological or pathophysiological mechanism. Um, there, there, there was an interesting phenomenon. So this really started with a, a book that came out um, by a person, by an author, I won't, won't mention the name, that before was sort of really on the, um, on the candida connection. So this was an early phase that People say like all your symptoms of, including IBS and fibromyalgia and everything, is, was related to Canada, and that uh, it was due to the high sugar. Uh, the, the same group of people that promoted that like some 20 years ago, um, so are now promoting this gluten-free diet. So all the things before there was sugar that caused all these disorders, now it's it's gluten. That, that single book um, called the, the the Grain Brain. I personally think it's responsible for most of that worldwide, you know, I like to call it a hysteria, really, um, which is centered in the U.S., which is kind of interesting. Like, you go to any other part of the world, people love bread and uh, couldn't live without bread. I mean, I was, whenever I go to France, I, I ask people, have you heard about gluten sensitivity? They just laugh at you. So, <laughs> but like many things in science, you know, there may be a certain truth to it. Um, let's give you this example about the candida connection. So now that we not just measure the microbiome, so people have started to look at the virome and um, the fungi in the, and th there is now scientific evidence that, um, that people have increased levels of certain fungi, including candida. Hmm. If that's, so it would be sort of an amazing thing that like 25 years after these sort of um, non-scientific theories came out that, you know, we would sort of support this. And that could happen with gluten as well. Uh, so I, I have a personal opinion, but as a scientist, I like to say nothing is impossible. Yeah, it's crazy to think like one person could write a book and then everyone stops eating bread. 
Yeah, <laughs> it's it's amazing. I mean, yeah. it's really an amazing phenomenon. Yeah. So we are uh, uh, running low on time. So we'll, uh, we'll we'll have a few uh, rapid fire questions, and if you can uh, answer in one or two sentences max, we'll uh, we'll go through these questions. Um, but before we do, um, I also wanted to um, ask you to uh, say a little bit about your um, uh, the book that you just published. Um, uh, what's the uh, what's it about, and what's the uh, what's the who should read it? Um, so it's called the Mind Gut Connection. It's written for the lay public, and the um, uh, I would say it's not just for the lay public. It's also for the lay public, but also for a lot of professionals who are not microbiome experts and um, have not been aware of the science that has evolved. But brain-gut connections and brain-gut microbiome connections. It has a lot of different things in it, um, different topics in it, from um, the neurobiology of gut feelings, um, emotional regulation, um, early life events and influence to diet uh, and an optimal health, which is the, the, the final conclusion. And. Um, I think everybody should read it. Um, even for even for experts in the area, there's there's parts in it, including patient anecdotes. Um, interesting thing to me now: a lot of patients come to me that have um, heard about the book or read the book, and they say, "I'm so and so in your book." I, I don't have to tell you much about my symptoms. I'm so and so in your book. So I, I, I think it must have resonated a lot with with patients. As a psychiatrist, which sort of patient in my clinic should I recommend would read your book? Is it any any illness, anything? Well, I would certainly say, you know, patients with depression, anxiety, um, uh, particularly if they also have experienced uh, GI symptoms, autism spectrum disorders. Uh, those would be the three main, you know, that. Um, I mean, there's also now evidence, you know, Parkinson's disease playing a big role. So I would say you could probably recommend it to every patient. Well, good. Uh, I think that that sounds like a sounds like a fascinating book, and I'm looking forward to reading it myself. Me um, too. The um, so first rapid fire question is uh, in a sentence or two. Um, what does the field of psychiatry and mental health? Uh, where is it that we go most wrong? What is the biggest uh, oversight or mistake that we make? Well, so I don't see patients in a psychiatric clinic. I would say um, to kind of stop at the, at the neck or not go into the body, I think is, in my opinion, a, a, you know, is, 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 is a big flaw. I'm sure there's some psychiatrists who do that, but because um, I see the same patients probably from the opposite end. They, most of them have anxiety and depression and compulsive disorders. And, um, so... But I start at the body, and I always see the symptoms at the body. So they're clearly both there, and uh, I think for psychiatrists, uh, that, that would be an important lesson. What is your favorite book? My favorite book? Um, I would say the, the Black Swan by Taleb. Um, sort of the um, realizing the, the complexity of the world, and the more complexity, the, the more interconnectedness, and the more unpredictable it, it becomes. I think the, mm -hmm. our brain, one of our brain functions also discusses in the book is a, is a, is a prediction machine that makes, tries constantly to make predictions. And if, if that's done in a linear way, um, 
they almost certainly go wrong. I mean, like in, in, yeah. in a complex world as today, it's not no longer possible to do that. Um, what advice would you give to a young doctor, a trainee? Um, I would say, you know, listen to your patient. Um, many things that the patient is, most things that the patient will tell you, um, you know, can be explained in, in, a, in, a, in a holistic model of, of brain, and, um, brain and body. Um, yeah, I would say listen to the patient and don't reject things uh, that don't fit your, your textbook description. Most textbooks will become obsolete in 10, 15 years. And, but what the patients say, I've experienced this in IBS research, um, has stayed the same, and now we're finding so many answers. Um, what is your favorite food, and what is your favorite food to recommend to patients to feel better? So, uh, while writing my book, I've become a big fan of the Mediterranean diet for various reasons. And since then, since I pay a lot more attention now to dietary factors, it seems there's almost universal agreement that a Mediterranean-style diet doesn't have to come from Italy or Spain. Many traditional Asian diets have the same sort of composition of 75% um, plant-based foods and small amount of um, meat, protein. Um, and I would recommend, so even in psychiatry now, I think it's the same as in the study of UCLA, Alzheimer's, um, slowing of Alzheimer's progression, uh, depression, seems to be a universal truth to that. And it's tasty. You don't have to sort of eat strange things or elimination diets. You know, it's, it's a tasty diet and it's probably one of the best documented health uh, benefits of, of anything. What is your favorite species of bacteria? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a tough one. Um, um, so there's one, just, it's one out of several. It's called Acamancia mucinophilia, um, funny name. So the second name, you can hear the mucin, uh, mucin connection. So they are, they are bacteria that stimulate our specialized cells in the intestine to produce mucin, mucus. Um, and that's a very healthy thing because the thicker the mucus layer is, the more we're protected from a leaky gut. And um, echomancia goes up with a high plant-based diet. So that it's the food that really nourishes these organisms. Excellent. And the last question is if you, is there a person that you would consider a hero, uh, either living or dead or fiction, somebody that you would consider a hero? In the microbiome field or? Or in anything, really. Well, that's a tough one. I mean, it's, um, I mean, I would say, you know, that's limited to the microbiome field. Um, so Martin Blazer from NYU, who has sort of been the main driving force behind revealing the, um, the detrimental effect of antibiotic use, uh, inappropriate antibiotic use on microbial diversity. And he's written a phenomenal book, uh, Vanishing Microbes, or Missing Microbes, uh, which I would recommend to anybody because you, you will change your um, um, antibiotic prescribing behavior dramatically when you, once they've read this book. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us on the show. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure.